was like a demented mole there. He just burst through the defense. Just watch this. Welcome to the Molecast. Good evening. Good evening. Um, if you take out the first and last 10 minutes, we probably shaded Ireland. Now, loath as I am to take anything that Eddie Jones actually says at face value, let's talk about the first 10 minutes of that game and the last 10 minutes of that game to start with. Um, Ireland were absolutely brilliant from the off and had that. Uh, had the ref seen that um, infraction on Gary Ringrose picking the ball up at the base of the rook as a knock forward by England or as possibly a knock back by Gary Rose and Caelan Doris barreled over for a second try within 10 minutes um, it could have been a very different story for Ireland an even better story than the a record win bonus point 17 point victory in uh, in Twickenham which we didn't even achieve in their Grand Slam year yeah taking taking like minutes out of the game it's just stupid. Like you, you have to play for eighty minutes. Like that is, it's it's sort of loser talk, basically, from uh, Eddie Jones. But so, I mean, we don't, we're not taking that at face value. What I'm talking about is how good Ireland were from the first whistle. Yeah, started off really well. Really, really nice, crisp start. Uh, particularly against when you compare it against uh, the start against France and. Crisp and slick and adventurous. A couple of times, very early in the game, Johnny Sexton got scragged and somebody immediately presented with hands up for an offload and he just gave it. One was to Bundy, maybe two, maybe both were to Bundy or maybe one was to Bundy, one was to Darius. But uh, we looked alive, we looked very alert, didn't look overawed or uh, or worried. Uh, and they went out and tried to carry that through the entire game. You know, they had knock-ons, but... Um, not the first person to say it, but like if you play a high risk, high reward game, it's highly risky. You will drop passes. You will give 50-50s. And clearly uh, they backed themselves to continue to play that game, trusting that it would come right. And yeah, you know, in an ideal world, you play a perfect game and, and you don't make any mistakes, but it doesn't, doesn't happen. Like Sometimes I feel that... Um, the same people who are complaining about Joe Schmidt's team playing too conservatively are now complaining about Andy Farrell's team playing too riskily. And it's like, the, 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 the complaint seems to be, why don't you just play the perfect game? You know, make all your decisions perfectly and execute all your skills perfectly. It's not going to happen. Well, another period I thought they were actually very effective in the game was the 40 to 50 kind of, Minute, but in particular, the first five minutes of the second half, and the two very speculative offloads that didn't come off that um, how they come off would have seen Ireland really wrap up the game because all, all it just needed a third try and that game was wrapped up really. So this is this is Ty Byrne to Henderson and Furlong to Aki. Uh, no, the other one thing is uh, I think the first one is uh, James Lowe. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I guess the question is, did it just start coming off in the last 10 minutes or did they stop throwing the ball around as much, as riskily in the last 10 minutes and play it a little bit more conservatively and, you know, sort of hands will do it as it were, rather than you need to score off the first offload you make? I think it came off in the last 10 minutes. I, I When... Hugo Keenan sort of, I won't say he, he identified, he ran, he got into the space in the build-up to Jack Conan's try. And he, like he held on to the, he held on to the ball, trusting that he, he could get through the gap, trust, but still trusting that he could get it away. So he sort of, he was kind of flirting with that uh, Red Sea, not collapsing in on top of him. Um, and I, I mean, I thought he had a superb game, Hugo Keenan. I, I would have given him a man of the match myself. Um, and it's... 
I think like Hugo said, like it's when, when stuff goes wrong, it's like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. And it gets all the what about and all the what if you so, oh, I shouldn't have done that, shouldn't have done this. Um, I think you have to be, you have to try to be absolute in your views about like, what are you trying to do? So it doesn't, it doesn't excuse making mistakes. Um, but I think there's a big difference between running across the pitch. I think there's a big difference in passing the ball behind people routinely as opposed to trying to pass the ball in a tackle and then it not working because that's not, that's not going to work. Mm. And like Ireland had a few where the ball went to ground when they, they passed it out the back and like it just it didn't happen for them. But then you see Ireland play and they use the width of the pitch. They're very keen to go to the edge and they talk about attacking the space. They talk about the willingness to attack the space. And Farrell will talk, like and after the French match, he'll talk about the fact that they, they didn't go to the edge uh, when the opportunity presented itself. So the, like he, he will, he'll call them out for, for not being riskier. If, if you want to look at risk in that way, and it, it's... Well, to, well, what my point was, when you talk about absolute absolutism it's not like i'm going to offload every time i get the ball it's that's not what we're referring to it's like if i think the offload is on i'll go for it yep that sort of absolutism you have to you you don't you don't think if i think the offload is on i might go for it well from from the soccer uh what about or the soccer analysis that we'd have complained about is that like <laughs> for maybe a decade of us growing up watching football every goal was because of bad defending and ball watching. And you're there thinking, tell me what he should have done. Don't, mm. don't, don't tell me what he did wrong there because it, it always seems to be the same thing. Tell me what he, tell me what he should have done here. Like how, should the, like how should you set up your defense in order to counter what you're saying? What, like keep your eyes on the ball? Like it, it can't be the same thing every single time. Mm. And I, I agree with you completely. Like the, the complaint about Joe Schmidt team was that they never offloaded. So, and the, the problem with that team that some commentators, and I suppose Matt Williams was the most vocal, was, look, they just, they don't score enough tries. And maybe it's the spirit of the age. Maybe it's the fact that it, like it's easy to fill a news column, but there's a kind of a partisanship. So you find yourself going, I, I definitely find myself saying, because I was pro Schmidt, saying, well, like penalties win matches as well as tries. Like, and Joe Schmidt's teams, they do score tries. Like if you look at their, their stats, Joe did play a fairly attritional game with Ireland. And oh, yeah. he certainly didn't play the same sort of game as Farrell did. Now, there's there's a downside to that game, which we saw for the first two years of Farrell's tenure, that like when it when it doesn't work, you don't know what the hell is going on. Like, and I think the players didn't know what was going on. And I think they're just there seems to be a real confidence about the team now. And there was there was an article about Jameson Gibson Park in the Irish Times at the weekend, and there was a quote from Stuart Lancaster talking about Jameson Gibson Park, but talking about all top players in particular, that said like you have to have like a a, a certain level of self belief. And I think it was more pronounced than a certain level. Like I think he was talking about quite an elevated level of self belief. And it came to mind um, really about Andy Farrell, that he's 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 a guy who, what, like he made his pro debut at 16, was it 16 or 17 for Wigan? I think it was 16, 16 for Wigan. 16, I think, yeah. He was captain of Great Britain when he was 19. He was he was playing for a great Wigan team. He was, you know, involved with Wigan for like over a decade at the top level. He then transferred codes and he played for England. Like he's, he's a guy who's done it and he's, he's a huge guy. So... I think with that, that like that, that physical stature, coupled with, you know, like he, he's going to dominate a lot of rooms mm. that he's in, just because he's he's really big, and that's a like that's just a physiological, that's a human nature fact. But he's that level of self belief that he had to be able to do those things so young, and then the level of self belief that you get from actually doing them is is. It's kind of quite something, and it, like it, it's very difficult to quantify. But I, I think it's definitely a sort of a characteristic of his 
um, that like you can't replicate if you're Eddie Jones or if you're Joe Schmidt. Like you, there's other things you can mm. bring to the to the table. Um, and he seems to have got it across yeah, to the to, Irish to team. have passed it on. <laughs> and, we, and we were joking about it like that when he uh, when he got Paulie onto the coaching ticket that we were long on tall inspirational guys <laughs> and short on coaching practical coaching experience. And you're kind of looking at it now going tall inspirational figures are the way forward. <clears throat> well, we didn't talk uh, directly about it before the England game. So what were you expecting to find uh, in an England team where we're being talked up as favourites for an away game at Twickenham? When I saw the team, I thought it was lightweight. So... I had real misgivings about picking a combination of Van der Fleer and Amani at six and seven because they've been animalized um, two years ago in the, in the corresponding fixture. I had misgivings then about not starting Hendy and putting Ty Byrne and James Ryan in the back row, or sorry, second row. I'd have started Hendy and then moved Byrne into six to give us like three big guys in the line. And just, just a bigger, more physical back row and a stronger second row. And I thought that with Sheehan, Byrne, Vanderfleer, Omani, we had four guys who are lightweight or cultish. So they were my misgivings about the team that was named. Um, and I'd have started Robbie Henshaw in the centre with Bundy. Uh, again, like just, just for physical presence. That was also the centre partnership that started the game we won last season. Yeah. Um, and I, I, was, I felt the same as you. Uh, the, back, the flanker combination played against uh, O'Mahony and Vanderfeer played against England 2019 uh, in the Six Nations. The, the autumn or the August game where we got 57-15 over in Twickenham. Then the 2020 game, like it's, it's, it doesn't work. Uh, both of those, those games were generally played with Stander at eight. Stander was never the problem. It's like that combination shouldn't play together. And I would have thought like twice it was twice it was under Farrell or under Schmidt once it was under Farrell. And I thought like, did you not learn that this combination of flankers doesn't work against England? So I, I felt that that was like in the front row. His hands are tight. There, there were no other changes to make with the, with the injuries to uh, Kelleher and Porter, but I felt that in the back row he had options and I thought he selected the wrong back row, frankly. So then I thought, well, he's picked these guys. Like, what's he trying to do? And I thought, like, he's he's picking a team for line out strength. Like, he wants to have... That's the, the set piece that he's he's really targeting. Um, put pressure on their line with Omani. Guaranteed good ball with Omani playing alongside Byrne. Um, and he wants to play a quick game. Like if you're if you're picking Pete Omani and Josh Vanderfleer, who can both play at seven internationally. Like I, I think seven at this stage is Omani's best position at an international level. Um, and you're picking Gary Ringrose in the centre ahead, and you're keeping Robbie Henshaw on the bench. Like what you're looking to play is quick. You're looking to play it wide, and. That, and then and then that's the way Ireland went out and played. So I thought that there was a lot of things that I thought came to fruition as a consequence. And then there was a lot of things that I was I was proven wrong. So I I you see after the game, balls that I do a review of the the marks that the English papers gave to the Irish players, and like Keen Healy and Peter Romani were the ones who got the bore the brunt of it. And I was so I looked at the match afterwards, and I thought, okay, well, like Peter Romani, um, like he's not a physical number six, and we've known that for a long time. But you see the problems that we had in the scrum and then you see how well our line-out coped and particularly how much quality ball we got off the middle. And then you go, like, Peter Manny just delivers that. Like, there's three line-outs in particular where he's nailed at the top of the jump and it's just slick ball and we're on the go, we're on the attack. And you go, well, shit, like, that, that's what he brings. Like, this is the virtue of picking him. Now, is that enough? Mm, I don't know. Josh Vanderfleer, completely... I'm a complete convert. Like, I think, 
I've never seen a guy at that stage of his career improve so much. Like two years ago, I really had doubts about his future as an international rugby player. After that match, I'm a complete convert. Like, I mean, there's games where he's played very, very well for the last, I don't know what, like year and a half, just over a year. Um, and you kind of wonder, well, shit, like is in a certain combination, a back row, is it like when Ireland are winning? And like what really impressed me was that... Um, you see what he does in the build-up to James Lowe's try and like his speed and his ability to carry and his ability to pass, but you sort of go, look, that's what he does well. What really impressed me in the build-up to Jack's, Jack Conan's try, he took the ball on, and there was another one underneath the sticks. Mm, the leg drive. Took contact and just drove two or three English guys back and you're sort of going, holy shit. Like he's, he's taken it to them. And like my misgivings were two years ago, he just, he's not he's not physical enough, he's soaking everything. And you're sort of going, that's, like, that won us the match. That, that, that's, that's a little bit over-egging it because like, we were 18-15 up going into playing 14 men over the last 10 minutes. But like, that gives you such a lift. Yeah, winning it contact. Sucked, it, sucked though, it, like, it, sucks, it, it sucked three English guys into the tackle, into the rook situation. And we're a team that likes to go wide. Yeah. So like, if, you, if you make them honeypot and you make them compress in, and you make them go backwards and, you know, they give up their spacing. That's what creates the space. And like they're that. one man down. And know? they're one man down. Like, I mean, that's what allows you to score. So I thought that was incredible. I thought then, like, I want to see Hendy start. And then Hendy came on and you're just there going, oh, Jesus. Like. The proverbial <laughs> curate's egg. As you said yeah. earlier, like, he had some good moments. He had a great, uh, in uh, the ball, in it, sort of a mall, it was called a tackle. But he stole that cleanly. Um, he had a good sort of rumble pass to Toje down the right hand side, but he also made a just a load of mistakes. Yeah, so many penalties. Yeah, missing kickoffs, and just you know missing. The scrum, was poor. scrum was poor. He for that time that Toje wrestled our entire mall to the ground. Like Hendo's the man who doesn't step in. He just it's only a step off, you know, and he he is coming back from a, a long. Relatively long spell out with injury, just a step off, and I felt like it's a guy who's a who's a bit rusty. Uh, but Ross alone doesn't like. There were some bad decisions in there as well from him. You know, a guy with 65, 66 caps or something like that. You're going, Jesus, don't fucking handle the ball on the ground on the twenty-two right in front of our sticks. Don't leap like a meter and a half across their line out. Don't do it, man. I then, what else did I think? I thought that Dan Sheehan suffered against uh, Jamie George. Agreed. Probably more than anybody else in the scrum. And two of the decisions in the scrum were, like the scrum never even went down. Like, and when you're again reviewing that, you're going, geez, like Reynald, like he had them on the judges' cards, he had them like 10-8, 10-7 if he could score it yeah. like that. In, in that round. Um there's very little we can do right. But then when you see it from the overhead and you've got questions about the scrum, like is Sinclair pulling it back, is Genge wheeling it round? Yes and yes. But Jamie George is the fulcrum and our second rows are breaking up and you're just there looking, going, that's where the point of strength is really. And look, like Sheen is a big tall guy, but he's cultish as well. And that's why it's that kind of trade-off about having a hooker. And again, in the build-up to James Lowe's try, he handles well. He runs well. You see his evasiveness and his, his, and all his, his carries. step and all his carries. He's just not an enormous man like like Jamie George. I wouldn't have picked Andy Conway. I'd have liked to have seen Balakoon or Mac Hansen. Andy Conway had a super game. Mm. Um, absolutely super match. And although it's not directly... Like I'd have started Hugo Keenan, but I probably would... I look at the 20s going for the Grand Slam and part of me sort of thinks there's no one really outstanding player that I see in that team. Like there's no one really, really good athlete that I sort of go, that guy's a superstar. And then I think to myself, like, does, does that matter? Like ideally you would see it. You'd, like you'd see the, the, the sort of 
like just the athletic phenomenon. Yeah, as a point but, of comparison, like like a Hearn was or like Jack Crowley was, you know, in the two thousand team. Yeah, but even like that Welsh scrum half, where you just go, Jesus, like that guy's got the goods, like the coordination and the athleticism and the talent and all that sort of stuff. But then I look at Hugo Keane and I goes, like he never stood out to me as an under twenty, and yet here he is as an international. I thought he was the best player in the pitch. So, like, does it matter if he sells jeans as an under twenty? And maybe. But probably not. Yeah, I think no. And I'm the same as you. Like I saw Matthew Byrne was the other winger in that, uh, that was a 2016 team. And I would have thought like more or less the same player, you know. And Keenan is like, Keenan's the best player that the Leinster Academy, the best back that Leinster Academy have turned out since Gary Ringrose. And like, I, I saw Keenan's first game for Leinster against... Uh, Came on as a sub winger against Bath in a preseason friendly in in uh, Donnybrook, the same game that Ronan Kelleher first met, played for Leinster, and I just was thinking like, Jesus, like how? I actually thought I have to say as they're going, this this fella mightn't make it through the academy. It's just so wrong, you know. So there's two things that testament firstly to because like Captain Wrong here, I sort of thought the same thing about Jimmy O'Brien. I couldn't really couldn't really see it and they get great coaching both of them benefited from a spell with the sevens they get great coaching at Leinster and also just like there is a um, there's an awful lot to be said for their own personal drive those two players it was notable that <coughs> Keenan uh, when uh, the rugby first came back uh, from the initial COVID break yeah Keenan um, had won a fitness test at Lens. Yeah, the Bronco test, yeah. yeah that was the first sort of notable. And then when he got picked at fullback, you're like, oh, they, they finally picked one of the, you know, younger younger Leinster lads. And mm-hmm. like, the game that they gave Larry against Italy was the first time he hasn't been picked at fullback oh, I know. since he got it. And like, that was a bit of a, Larry's doing well, we need to give him a game. But like... You know, it it was just it was rotation. Oh, absolutely! You know, and that's twenty something games in a row. Like he's up to twenty caps already. Is he? Wow! And then I I think on the under twenties thing that um, there was a sort of a trend, and maybe it's still there of converting guys to hooker who are flankers but who aren't quick enough mm. to to play flanker. And they said, you know, this guy's got the ball handling skills. And I think there's an argument or a mindset for looking at guys who are props, but going, do you know what? He's not probably big enough, fast enough. Or maybe he is, but he's got decent hands. Like, i.e. he can throw mm-hmm. and moving him into hooker. Because, like, you see the benefit of a scrummage and hooker. And when I think of, of hookers that, that I've really liked over the years, like Steve Thompson, Marius Tinku from Romania... Uh, Servash, Jamie George, Bismarck, John Smith. Yeah, like these are all these are all big blokes who can scrummage, and I think it's like it's it's such a fulcrum for your team, and it 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 just gives you something to coalesce around. Like yeah, it's, it's brilliant. Certainly, the the because I went through uh, looked at the scrums specifically yesterday evening. Just for for my own um, p- peace of mind, like it's overwrought, but it was like I, I wanted to find out what as much as I could from it, and because I felt that um, I felt that what one of the article that you mentioned there in balls that like Kean Healy was a fault, and I was there going, well, oh, I remember Kean winning, Kyle Sinclair getting pinged for the first scrum. First scrum was penalty to Ireland. Yeah, and I. Keen got pinged for another one, but like Tyg was the fella who got penalised all the time. So I was looking at Tyg in particular, and there's there's a couple of instances where uh, Ellis Genge scrummages extremely well. Ellis Genge, when people say he's a dynamic scrummager, they're going, "What's it mean? Like, does he buck up and down like a bronco?" It's no, it's as much to do with his foot placement and that he can get his hips out, get under Tyg from the outside in, force Tyg up, and then he he can step in with his right and so sort of level his hips again, like. A lot of the a lot of the comments I've read on uh, Twitter or on uh, on the internet has said like, "Oh, England were spinning around all the time." And England did spin around once on the touchline scrum, 
where they got a penalty, where they all just took a step left and spun around. And that was harsh call. It comes from the touch, which actually you can see his, 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 his arm across his midriff and pressed the mic pad. But, uh, like, sometimes they just went around after the fact. And um, I, felt, I felt that instead of going, trying to scrummage um, from an unadvantageous position, going backwards, Tyke should have just pulled that scrum down when he feels, feels the pressure going on because I'd rather collapse the scrum than end up going backwards. Uh, it, it's a different picture to the ref. And you, I didn't see, like, Tyke didn't collapse the scrum in the entire game. So, but I, as Andy said there earlier, like there's a big, there's a couple of overheads where you can see how Jamie George gets his right shoulder down on top of of, uh, of Dan Sheehan. So he's forcing Dan Sheehan's chin to his chest and very disadvantageous position for putting any force forward. And that enables Jamie George to get on top of Dan Sheehan and then move across so that you do have a pincer effect on Furlong. Tough scene. Uh, one of the one of, after that happened on uh, on like it was it was I think the maybe the second English scrum penalty. Sheen gives away a free kick because he takes his break foot backwards, and you can see exactly what he's trying to do. He's trying to get his hips lower so he can he can keep his posture uh, going forward and up rather than trying to scrummage at ninety degrees bent at the hip. But uh, Reynal picked that up and, and free kicked us. So there's a couple of wildly different. Um, Scrum penalties in it, but the main thing is we were we were killed at the scrum. Yeah, and the other thing that struck me about the match and the selections, and then looking about, uh, I looked at what Farrell said in the build-up to the match after the match. If yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, that that sort of sequencing. So we talked about Omani, and he talks about Pete's very good in the leadership. Emotional leadership is very important in a test match. Mm -hmm. Was that. Darius gets a turnover of 54 minutes and the Irish body language was great. Great. I commented about it at the time because I was kind of surprised, like the back slapping that is going on. And it's become a real feature. Like when you see the slow motion afterwards of guys, like guys are roaring. Like there's one mm. of a Toe Jay and Jamie George. Oh, like, yeah. Really. Comes through the screen really almost. Own, you know, really owning that sort of uh, barbaric yawk. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Jamie George, real happy clapper nose, <laughs> listening every time. And, <laughs> uh, with his big jumble waistcoat on. <laughs> yes, great barbaric yop. Um, but again, like in contrast to two years ago, where Ireland did something really well, and like the only guys reacting to it were Bundy and Aki, mm, and they Bundy were the guys who brought and, the yeah, fight. Yeah. Or not Bundy and uh, Bundy and Stander, and they were they were yeah. the guys who were bringing the fight. And you're sort of going like. One's a South African and one's a Kiwi. Like, where's where's the Irish guys reacting yeah. to this? We're all like moping around with their heads down, beating Dockett in the first half. Whereas, like, and this is England have been like England have had the best fifteen minutes of the match really up to that point. And again, after the match, Sexton talks about like two years ago we'd have lost that match. So again, is it is it Farrell? Is it he brought in the guy as their head doctor who'd done the. Um, the shrink, you know, the fellow who worked with boxing Ireland. Yeah, he's very low profile, but he seems to have had a massive impact. Well, they all keep on talking about how much they enjoy it more than any other rugby they've possibly yeah. ever played, which like is either incredible messaging or they're actually just having a great time. Um, can I ask you about? Uh, I've no interest in talking about the sending off. Obviously, it's complete sending off, but. So the, the English taking such joy in getting absolutely hammered by us because they felt like that they defied the odds, I guess, uh, and like you know got it back to fifteen all, and with you know they've been playing essentially an entire game with fourteen men, and how everyone was talking about like what a brilliant atmosphere, uh, you know, it's like the the most atmospheric they've heard Twickenham be in such a long time. Mm -hmm. And like, there seems to be a weird role reversal with the English taking this like perverse delight in a like moral victory. And um, I don't know, I, where do you think, where do you think their whole project stands? They're clearly all like, they're clearly really together. And like, they, it was like they were bound together by adversity uh, rather than like, 
pre-match bullshit. Yeah, I don't think, I have to say, I don't think there's anything wrong in taking pride in that performance. Uh, I thought it was, uh, given that they were down a man for so long, I, I do think they showed exceptional fighting spirit. And with that said, against that is like, they had, they had their full complement of backs on the pitch for the entire game. They don't have a fucking clue what they're doing in attack. And Eddie Jones saying, oh, we're trying to like invent a new rugby where there's no formations and everyone reads the game perfectly. Why that does, shit doesn't work. Why does anyone believe that either? That's bullshit. Like England should be, what England should be doing. Well, Eddie Jones is a super experienced coach who's taken two different teams to World Cup finals. So He's like, been involved with three. Yeah. So he knows, well, good point, sorry. Uh, like he knows a shitload about rugby. So... Yeah, he's he's like he is a man who who speaks, uh, like he's he talks big, but like it, there's enough reason that he brought them to a World Cup final like three years ago, less than less than three years ago. So he is a they guy got who hammered in it. They got hammered in it because they lost the scrum battle. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I just say what I mean is I don't. It's not. I'm not saying that Eddie Jones doesn't know anything about rugby. I'm saying that. You can't believe anything Eddie Jones says. That's my point. So if he's talking about a new rugby and a new England, why would I believe it? When I like everything else he says is total bullshit. Or like when really like all his good teams have been based around like absolutely just power carriers, like fucking uh Vunipola basically playing at the top of his game and um Too Alongi. Too Alongi, yeah, playing at the top of his game. Yeah, and he's still waiting for too long to come back in. Like he totally. is just like, like he's not trying to reinvent he's rugby. Like, he's like beside a candle drawing red X's through it. Why won't he call? I think the I think the English team is pretty together. Like I, I think they'll get to they seem to enjoy each other's company. Like I think that's that's a big plus for them. Um despite Saracen's being relegated and being shamed and all that sort of stuff, like they've come back and again, like there's a lot of guys. A lot might be too much, but like the the core of the team is is still quite Saracens focused. Like Jamie George, Atoje, bring Owen Farrell back in. Like it's it's pretty Saracen centric, really. That, um, and I I just find. I think Ireland beating the All Blacks three times has kind of freaked a lot of a lot of other countries out, sort of without us noticing it. Like the French were delighted to beat us in Paris by a score. Um, we got a bonus point, and England are taking moral victories from being hammered us by a Twickenham, and you sort of go, "There's something wrong with this picture." But Ireland won a Grand Slam at twenties at. 2019 2019 would have won one would in, have won one in 2020 um campaign probably didn't go our way last year and you know okay not every goose can be a swan and they're on on course to do it again this year and like irish rugby irish domestic rugby is, is strong in terms of like the province's strengths so there is a bit of a I don't know. It's more respect for Irish rugby than there ever has been before. I think. Yeah. So that I I think that's like Ireland were Ireland were favourites for the game in Twickenham. Yeah. Yeah. You know, bookies are rarely wrong, as um, many people have said before me. Yeah. My 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 over overwhelming feeling about the England. Um, performance is I think the sending off narrowed their focus and uh, it made them play to their strengths which like it seems like since the 1991 World Cup final when they were goaded about uh, oh yeah good playing, point yeah. like not playing running you know running rugby and they tried to play running rugby like every good English team has been just an obliterator with a fucking points machine at 10 and like some insanely fast wing now whether it was Rory Underwood or Jason Robinson and like those are like two fucking unbelievably brilliant yeah. players I'm not I'm not talking them down but like I don't know why the English are ashamed at being like 
beefy meatheads. Like, and that's what exactly what the rugby team should be. They always want to. They always want to pretend that they're fucking All Blacks. And every time they beat the All Blacks, they do it by playing not like the All Blacks. And it's the same thing with picking Marcus Smith at ten rather than play, picking like Owen Farrell, who's miles better than. Him. Well, Far- Farrell's injured at the moment. Okay, well, yeah, but like Marcus Smith is like. Is he better than Finn Russell? No, he's not better than Finn Russell at international level. Yeah, he is. Ah, he's not. Did you watch Finn Russell play recently? Finn Russell. Started, Finn Russell is a complete flake. He started a test for the Lions. Like, yeah, he's played a load of flake games for Scotland recently. Okay, well, England want to. They want to see themselves in a certain light, and also they want to like be better than they are. Like that's not uh, that's not an unforgivable crime. I think Ireland are entertaining team as well to watch. So, like, there was like, Ireland scored four tries in that match and then looked to attack. So when you're going to it, you're actually enjoying the rugby match. Like, there's a lot mm. of rugby on display. There's a lot of action, and you're sort of going, "This is pretty good." And like, whatever way my team is going to stick with it, like I'm having a good time watching it. It's not like watching paint dry and just watching like lads just run into each other, you know, repeatedly. Um. It's enjoyable to watch. Plus, I get the cheer the guys aren't doing, like whatever it is. Like they're 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 showing a bit of fight, and I think that's enough. Like that that's there's a sort of a feel good that people have from that combination. Yeah, I I just I just don't understand the English with like they're carrying on like it's too easy to win the Six Nations by being a bunch of bullies. I know like, what you mean. Yeah, they, like, Eddie Jones is not going to win the next World Cup, right? He's not going to win the next World Cup, and like he has sold them two world. He is he's going to sell them like eight years worth of coaching, being like, "Well, this guy, you 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 said he's been to two World Cup finals. He, he didn't win the two World Cup finals. He was coach us. He's been he's been to three. And I mean, he, he, he didn't was, win he the was, two. He, he didn't win the two. Advisor for Jake yeah, Schmidt. Yeah. yeah, but Jake White. Jake White. Sorry, but you're being sold this idea that like he could be the man to, to win a World Cup for England. Like he. But he's he's, he is an innovative. He's an innovative coach. Yeah, he's definitely an innovative coach. England don't need an innovative coach. They need someone to galvanize their meatiness into some fucking bruising, like colossal grinder that will just like what Nigel Farage like <laughs> fucking practically. It's like Twickenham, man. That's like, those are the people there. <laughs> anyway, let's not talk about the England Ireland match anymore. We've done enough on that. Uh, I didn't see the twenties match. Um, yeah, I I, uh, I, I, I watched, watched the Leinster game. Unfortunately, I saw the highlights and I saw the twenties. I made w- a terrible decision to watch Leinster Ulster instead of the twenties. I watched the I watched the highlights of the twenties online, and it like um, it reminded me. I don't know. I don't know what was the problem with the um, audio connection, but it reminded me of a, a Euro ninety two qualifier we played against Albania. <laughs> <laughs> Where, where it sounded like George Hamilton was coming in over a walkie-talkie, <laughs> <laughs> and I think it was played in. The, was it played in Saracens Ground? The no, it was played it was in like the the stone, most, oh, it's the Stone X Stadium is Saracens Ground now. Sorry, the yeah. most dimly lit place I have ever yeah. seen. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, um, my Energy main takeaway from a hates all king. Oh my word! Can we start him for Ireland? <laughs> Balbriggan's own eight all king. I was delighted for him. I was—he's like a missile. Yeah, he did so well because he hasn't got like necessarily the bounce. This is only his second start for the twenties. Um, sorry, this wasn't a start. This yeah, was like he only he only started one game previously for the twenties. I th- I thought he'd be in on the wing from the start because um, I'd heard from him. he's one of triplets. Whoa! Yeah. Uh, he's a Balbriggan uh, club man maybe moved from Balbriggan to Tarf but yeah it's delighted for him really like the the two tries were great the second finish was unbelievable sort of real NRL mm. Parramatta Eel stuff and the first one was like pretty much as good yeah really happy for him but a good team a good team throughout like I was really impressed with Rory Maguire the tight head uh, and Culhane, the number eight, is another. He's had a blinder. He's had a tournament. great tournament. And uh, Devine got a good run yeah, from Gary Doyle. I didn't see it because Devine was the guy who really impressed you love, me. You love Devine. Yeah. He came off the bench against France. So, Jesus, like, really enjoyable team to watch. They're going in to play Scotland. I believe the game is on Sunday. 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 Uh, and Scotland have lost all their games so far, including against, against well, now Wales away, but like, we n- hammered Wales. So the Scots are. 
Scots are not a super competitive bunch. Uh, they're bottom of the table. And it, it, it could be a, a really good day for Irish rugby. Good weekend for Irish rugby. Uh, Wales versus France. Um, you had some interesting thoughts about Wales versus France. Yeah. Didn't you? Really, really enjoyed it. Um, the Friday night game has its own problems. Like it was uh, Peter Jackson, the Welsh journalist, was writing it was the lowest attendance for a Six Nations game in Cardiff in more than 20 years, I think. Uh, 11,000 unsold seats. And this is the, the seat, I think the cheapest ticket price was something like £115. Was that the cheapest? I think it was the cheapest. Now I could be, I could be. Birch, Birch mentioned 115, and Dick Birch is the gospel. Yeah, <laughs> for us, we keep referring to. Him. But he obviously coached in Wales, and he knows the guys in Wales. So look, I don't know if that was the minimum. That yeah, was, I, I don't look, know either. Listen, this is this is hearsay. It's really, really expensive, regardless. But also, there's issues with people getting to and from the game at that time of the night. Uh, but it was. I felt it was a cracker. I, was really gripping. Sometimes during um, games, I'll be on my, not on my phone all the time, but looking at my phone to see what people are saying about it on Twitter. My phone was on the ground for like a hundred minutes. Uh, I, I thought it was, I, I thought that it was really interesting to see how often France kicked and how uh, drilled, how drilled they are, how unwilling they are, or how willing they are to, to, keep to a game plan, like how often they'll kick down the middle of the pitch, waiting for the other team to go, oh, people are probably aren't enjoying this. I'm going to kick it into touch. I think that's sometimes what people, what even internationals think. Because like you could, you could literally do that for the entire game, just kick the ball up and down to the middle of the pitch for each other. And it looked like Entomac, it was the last person you would think. It was like, oh, Entomac is going to be the one to crack and fucking try and run it back. Nope, just kick it down the middle of the pitch again. Uh, that was fascinating to me. France, very happy to kick the ball down the middle of the pitch all the time, trust their defence and, and just basically go, we want to play in your half. We are not going to play that much from our half at all, if anything. Like Saracens, pre-really dominant Saracens. German you Saracens were like boring, boring Saracens? So yeah. 2013 through to like maybe 2012 through... Was Gaffney coached them? No, I think it was Martin Cole and the South African doctor centre, Venter. Venter, yeah, yeah. And it was like, yeah. we are just, we're not going to play in our half at all. And like they were boring, boring. Before they became really dominant. Uh, but they had a great, that was the, the, uh, the start of the Wolfpack defence under. Gustard. Gustard. I was about to call him Paul Gustav. And I was thinking, that is a missile. Carl <laughs> um, Gustav. We're all too familiar with that now. But... Uh, so France really disciplined disciplined in defence obviously under Edwards which I can totally understand but like I never saw this like rigorous approach to you know early teens Saracens kick the ball down the middle of the pitch don't play in your own half at all and then the one the one player I'd say that we both enjoyed the most of his performance great to loop oh my word what a, what a rugby player I yeah, he's he's an absolute pleasure to watch. He always is. And even, I think he's got a bit of his pace back. Yeah. Which, um, you know, obviously is is great for him and makes him better and gives me some hope for Dan Levy getting his pace back as well. I don't, like, I don't, I don't know how similar their injuries were, but just the fact that it can happen. If you've got, you know, injuries and you get older, you can still do it. And the other guy I thought was Liam Williams. And... <laughs> Go back to something that we were talking about a few weeks ago about like the idea of minutes. You know, you need to get minutes in, and mm -hmm. this this will make you a better player. And not <laughs> not on its own, it won't. But the value of experience, because a guy who gets loads of minutes, loads of caps, is pretty good. And even when not as dynamic or not as exciting as they used to be, they can still. Like they're still really, really good because the other guy was Liam Williams. Liam Williams was, I he was superb. Yeah, and he's not always a guy I've like. I think there's a bit of nonsense talked about him when he wasn't getting picked for Wales, but now he is getting picked for Wales. And there was one bit in particular. He he took a ball and he got he ran oh, into he Williams. Oh, he got emptied. He got absolutely emptied, and he got up like it was tip rugby. 
And yeah. you're just there going, how fit and hard is that guy? Like, what a brilliant fullback to have for you. Because he was he was winning it. Like, because France were kicking it so much, you're there going, you're not going to get any change out of this guy. Like, he's not their best player because Falatel is their best player, but like, he's he's not a million miles off it. And Falatel is brilliant. And, and the other thing was with Falatel, France made a break going left to right in the first half. Dupont ran one of his super lines mm. and the pass didn't quite go, but Dupont ran into the space. Falatel tracked him all the way. And you're just there going, there's, there's it's like, uh, there's probably some phrase that's out there that I can't remember, but it's like class recognizes class. It was something like that. It was just like, it was. It took a really good footballer to see the line attacking. Yeah. And it took a really good footballer to see the attacking line defending and just like to see the hole where it was and and to know how to track, and you're just there going like that's like that matchup is is a pleasure to watch. 100 percent. He and emerged though. Do you remember when he played? Like I think he got his debut in like a warm up game before 2011, and he just emerged onto the scene as like a complete player, Falatau. And he won like 70 caps in a row, basically, before he even got injured. Going, this fella is indestructible. And then, like, he picked up a load of injuries. Uh, and I'm so happy to see him back. He's such a fucking good rugby player. Yeah. And the other guy I liked when he came on was that Cardiff Tighthead, whose name I can't remember, who looks like something out of an Alan Alberg. And Alan, Alan and Janet yeah, Alberg. He, he looks, looks like, like one like of the cops in the robbers. Cops in the robbers, yeah. He looks yeah. like one of the robbers. Like, he looks like uh, Uncle Horace or something like yeah. that. Yeah, he played for Cardiff against Leinster. He got came, a steal. Got, got, a got three. Got three yeah. in the second half. He was fantastic. It's, is his name Will Owen? I don't know. Anyway, really Class. good player. Yeah, really good, really good player. Um, and Will Rowlands played savage rugby for them. Like that was a fella who I thought like he's thirty one, he's not a kid. Uh, very few caps, and I thought like this fella is like he's one of these lads who wears a black polo neck at the Oscars and comes and sits in the seat when it's empty if someone's gone to the can. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> he's like, oh, Alan Jones got to the can. You know, this fella just played his fucking heart out. Uh, really just such an impressive like that that welsh team in my opinion is like sh it's short on talent compared to the to the welsh teams of the past you know i look at their front row compared to like gethin jenkins adam jones look at their second row with no with no alan win jones no charters their back rows no lydiot no warbert no tapurich you know like they're they're fucking short on talent no mike phillips um, and unfortunately, like no John, more Jonathan Davies. Yeah, Jonathan yeah. Davies is shadow of himself. Yeah, and it's it's like it it happens, and like the knock on is like a real low light for him. Um, but it's like it it happens to players. Like you you get to you get to the top of the mountain, and then it's like you go downhill. And it's just a case of where it happens. And I, I, I thought that the pretty much the story of the match, where you're looking away as going, like these guys are never going to score a try. Like they just they don't have enough gas in the right place mm -hmm. to be able to. It's like how are they going to stick with France? And yet they did stick with France. And then at the end, they brought on Louis Rees-Samet, and you go, well now they do. Yeah. So like, if he gets the ball in whatever kind of the right space, and like the right space is really with with no French guys close enough to him to stop him line breaking, Wales could score from like yeah. 60 or 70 metres out because just be, like just because he's he's so fast. And, and, it, was, it, and it made for a great end game where yeah. you go, Wales need to keep the ball, keep attacking, and get Reece Samet into an opportunity. Just give him a bit of space. Just, just give him some sort of opportunity yeah. where he's in a mismatch or a bit of space and they could steal this match. And it was like when... when uh, Pivac played Josh Adams at 13 against us, and he didn't have a, like a great game. And like some of the like the Welsh rugby commentary can be very uh, hyperactive, isn't exactly the right word, like super condemnatory. Um, and I was like, oh, he, what did he do to this great winger of ours? He's asked him like it was like he'd asked it was like Nick Mallon asking Bergamasco to play scrum half. A, if you look at Wales online, you go, totally understand why he does that. He doesn't have George North to play 13, who he's moved in previously from winger to 13. He's trying to do the same with Josh Adams so he can get Adams on the pitch. 
and have Reese Ahmed on the pitch. This is before he brought back Cuthbert, but Cuthbert's been great since he came back. It's going to keep on talking like Shane Horgan. This sentence will never end. <laughs> um, so, like, they have they have three really good wingers, and at the moment, like, Tompkins has played very well. Obviously, missed this game with a knock on the head. But, like, their centre partnership like, between Watkins and JTV Davis, you're going, Jesus, it's like, you've got nothing there. You've got nothing between Bigger, who who is like number three great player on the West side, uh, and like the wingers and the fullback. Um, so I could understand why he tried to move Adams in. Like I, like when they get North back, North played amazingly last year. Yeah. As, as a thirteen, he was sensational. It was one of the best seasons of his career, and uh, like he, he'll solve a lot of problems for them. Like he's a Manu Tuolagi esque figure. If you move him into centre, he's fucking unplayable. Um, before this championship wraps up, uh, and rather than ask you who do you think will win it, how good do you think France are? If they win at the weekend, and I think they will, I think they'll derive a lot of confidence from it which is really important. And seeing as everything is, you know, through the prism of the World Cup, um, they'll take a lot from it. I think they're strong in the right place. Um, Cyril Boy is very good. Antonio is, is huge, but he's he's a decent rugby player. Um, but like he's, he's enormous, which is, again, really important. Uh, I think they're very strong at hooker with Marshall and Vaca. Like, I think they've got two really, really good guys there. And then with DuPont and, well, with Aldrich, DuPont, Entomac, that spine is very good. Um, and I think the confidence is, is a big thing. Um, Feels like Galtier had been obviously the man to come in and spearhead a de-fucking-mickeying of fucking <laughs> French rugby. Like, the amount of fucking chances they had coaching that Yeah, team. but he wasn't the He didn't appoint himself. It was Bernard Laporte who came in and shook everything up. Yeah, Ga- I mean, Galtier, by the way, like, there was so much interesting talk about Galtier when Ireland played. I don't know if we talked about this, like, like how much of a psychopath he is. He's fucking bananas. I never like, realised that. That he can does he like, he can, he's like apparently like cannot, he only likes good players and he's an apparently an appalling man manager with less talented players. Like they completely come to live in fear and resentment of him when he coaches clubs. Like he's like, oh, yeah. and it's not because like, oh, these are my favorites. Like, oh, he can sort of only relate to really good. Like, he, he won't work out of year himself. You <laughs> know, pretty fucking good. But apparently he can only relate to good players. And people like who were good to go, yeah, he was really good. And people who who were like hardworking. Domestiques. Domet- just call, oh, this exactly. guy's a dickhead. This guy is. That's why he's Rafa Ibn is. He's got like this yeah. really, really sound guy. Yeah. He's manager. Yeah. And he's like, you do the people bit. I'll do the brainy bit. <laughs> yeah. I'll do, like and, and even the glasses that he wears, just got like. I was literally going to say, how can a man go around with glasses like, like that and not be like insanely full of himself and just like right, sure of himself and just like headstrong? It's like they're fucking insane. Like they're crazy glasses. <laughs> <laughs> so how, how good do I think France are? Like, um, they've got some really. Like Dupont is, is great. Oh, Dupont is great. They lost three tests to Australia last year. And I, but I, I there's, and what's his name? The guy in the wing, Penno. Oh yeah. Is great. And Villier is a little warrior. He's a real asterisk uh, figure. And I hope he's from Gaul. <laughs> <laughs> After that, I like, France are such a, a strange nation in how consistently good they, they are in, like, since 1987. You know, when, when I remember watching them winning Grand Slams, getting World Cup finals, that they've always been able to beat anyone on their day. And it sounds like such a cliche thing to say, but 
they've never managed to translate that rose beef ascendancy into winning it. So England have only won it once, but the difference is like England have won it, whereas France have be, have France been in more finals. Same, yeah. same amount of three finals. finals. England have been in three finals. Yeah, yeah sorry. Um, and France have thrown up some incredible performances. Yeah. Uh, during their time, like when you when you think of great matches, <laughs> France are in them quite a yeah. lot. Um, Do you remember the nineteen ninety five semi final in the rain against South Africa? Mm. Oh yeah, the ninety nine semi in Twickenham. Yeah, and like the the final against the All Blacks in two thousand and eleven. And it's it's cliche, like, but it's, it's kind of cliche because it's true. So I think they've I think they've really great players. In in Penno and, and Dupont, and I think they're huge and they're strong. Yeah, you know yeah. The, the thing that like when when like one of the things about their depth is like you have this absolute mutant in you have two mutants in your starting lineup in Valenza and Antonio, uh, and like when they can bring off Valenza and then bring on Taufa Fanua. You're going, holy smokes, you see the strength uh, of the French League and that you just have these, a guy who you would think is irreplaceable, they just replace him with a like for a like. They can't do it for a Tony, but they do bring on Demba Bamba, who is an absolute tank. And it's the same when they brought Mervaka was amazing when he came on for Marchand, who himself is a superb player. Now, if they lose DuPont, they lose a shitload. Yeah. Uh, like... More, it's like as bad. It's like losing McCaw if you were in New Zealand. Don't think that you can get over that. Like Dupont is a like they have Olivon to come back in for one of the flankers, you know, whoever it is, whether it's Jelange, Cretan, or somebody like that. Olivon is like an amazing player. So they have great depth, but they still have like. You can't replace like your super world class players. Your consensus or your unanimous uh, like, there's so few players in history who everyone just goes, oh well, he's the best player in his position in any given year. Like everyone just goes, oh yeah, McCall's the best open side, Card is the best ten. Who at the moment is the best nine? You know, it's Dupont like last year, probably the year before, probably this year. Like those those fellas. Don't crop up that often. Mm. I, was tr- I was trying to put my finger on where I think they are. So when I think of like the really great teams, I think often they've got a lot of problem solvers. And again, that sounds just like reverting to cliche, but I think they have a lot of guys who really understand rugby. There was Colin Meads talked about the All Black team that he played in the 60s and the amount of guys that were captain of their province of the All Blacks. And like, this, this is a great All Black team. Yeah. He talks about the difference between going from like the 67 team to the 71 team where he goes, there was maybe two captains. And he's like, so like if, if you look at the All Blacks in 2015 or you look at like England in, in, in 2003, yeah. like they'd be, they'd be the teams or like the Aussies even like in, in 1999, they had a lot of guys who could think their way around the game like they had a lot of personalities they had a lot of experience they had a lot of guys who'd, who'd um, they just had experience playing and like winning stuff with their clubs and just understood it whereas like I think the example that you're giving of the French they're still kind of mechanical they're still like Galtier is the brain Ibanez is the heart and the team do what they're told they're still kind of cultish and it doesn't automatically translate that if you just keep on playing them, that these guys will all just magically mature. Like it, it doesn't it doesn't work like that. So that's where I think France are at the moment. I think like hugely talented, but um, not with that like understanding of how to play a variety of different games and how to win in different environments that really, really great team. Mm-hmm. Now, Maybe not, all through, the physical not put through those tests. Yeah. Probably now. They have all the physical characteristics to to become that team, but I, I don't think they're there at the moment. And they no. might never get there. Like, look, I've said this to you before. Like, 
Okay. Who were the, who was the, there was Jalanch Aldrich and who was the other flanker for the starting against Wales? Gross, isn't it? Yeah. Gross like, not start. Start against us. That like that's not a great French back row. No. You know, Olivon will make it better. If you put in Olivon beside Aldrich, you're going, yeah. Another line out option. You know, another unbelievable broken field run. A guy who's been your captain before. Uh, like I think, I think that there's like, I, I, like I don't think it's a super, super duper team. I know that some people say the best team in the world. I don't think they're the best team in the world. I think um, they have uh, because they have such flair in uh, in Dupont and Entamac and uh, Penno, who I was, who I always think is Dalo for some reason. <laughs> um, <laughs> They kind of almost have this, uh, and because those guys have provided such beautiful moments of like, just like really classy, breathtaking rugby, they have almost got a um, a sense that they are a you know um, French team in the cliche of chucking it around you as you a yeah. But really, they're actually quite a functional team with a few extremely. Uh, f- extremely talented player players yeah. in key positions. They're more like a Bernard Laporte team than the pre-Bernard Laporte teams with... Um, Canberra Barrow. Cam- exactly. I remember reading... So we were talking about Eddie Jones earlier on. I remember reading this stuff on an Aussie... It was green and gold. And oh, yeah, it yeah. was some of the comments about... Uh, and they were talking about Eddie Jones. The guys in green and gold hated Eddie Jones. <laughs> <laughs> but they, they talked about... Um, like a guy... The kind of the symbiosis between a coach and a captain. And Australia is like a big cricket country. So I think like the captain's role is, I think that plays quite an influence on, on the captain's role, uh, like in, in a sporting team. Mm-hmm. And they talked about how if you had a cerebral coach, you needed a blood and guts, yeah, yeah, yeah. thumping captain. Whereas if you had like a, a coach who was a real motivator. Checker. Yeah, you, you needed a, a guy who was quite focused and quite calm and, and uh, like one was a foil for the other, you know. So it was that idea of like Rob McQueen and uh, John Eels was a very good combination, whereas like for Bob Dwyer, uh, Simon Poydevin was a really good captain. Uh, this sort of stuff, look, maybe I'm not completely accurate, but these were the sort of names that were bandied about. So then I, again, looking at that... Um, at that England, like Martin Johnson and Clive, like you hear the stories oh, of Martin man. Johnson telling Clive Ward to go away before the um, before the, the the extra time, and like that would be music to Clive Woodward's ears. Like Clive Woodward was a manager and a delegator, and he set up the framework. And again, like I keep going back to that English two thousand and three team, but I, I definitely I was really attracted to that sort of idea that like Razia Erasmus really struck an emotional chord with the South Africans. So after they'd been beaten by the All Blacks, like they finished that tournament so well and they had a documentary about them and you see him giving his talk like in the build-up to the final yeah. and you go, this guy's brilliant. Yeah. Like He's a fucking schemer out there. Oh, <laughs> like, I mean, he's, like in a way, he's he's a complete and utter dickhead. Yeah. Like he's... Like he's a charismatic dickhead. Yeah. You know, like he's, he's a bad guy, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> And, uh, like, I think, whereas, like, Solly Khaleesi just comes across as, like, as a humble, really genuine... Yeah. Like, a a guy that people will rally around. And you sort of go, that combination... And, like, a lot of this is hindsight. You're kind of fitting in, like, a narrative to suit your point. But you're sort of going, like, there is something there, you know? Like, that... Like, if you had another bollocks being the captain, <laughs> like, would that work? Would you just be there going, I don't really believe in these guys. Like, they're really clever, <laughs> but they're awful, you know? Um, Who would be the biggest villain that they could pick? If they picked Etzebeth. Etzebeth, the yeah, sorry, it just would be an extra tick. <laughs> oh, well. Um, so... Johnny uh, shouting at everyone and uh, Andy Farrell, Vibes Merchant. Big Vibes Merchant, a <laughs> lot of rhetorical questions. And, and Paulie. Yeah. Mm. 
Okay, so uh, France to win the Grand Slam. Or will, will, will England have listened to my stirring speech about how they should play? We see England's team will be better. Firstly, they'll have 15 players. Secondly, they'll bring in Launchbury Fields. Launchbury's better than Yields anyway. Uh, so I think that's going to be a draw. 16 each. I think Ireland are going to... Um, I think we'll be buoyed by the by the results and the performance in the particularly with the ball uh, against Scotland and I think we will score a lot of points against them do you think so yep how many is a lot would you say 38 more than 40 more than 40 yeah uh, presuming that like Sexton stays on the pitch for 75 minutes or 70 minutes you know that'd be that'd be my prediction for the weekend I just think the difference in Ireland and Scotland is Ireland will play a lot closer to 80 minutes than Scotland will. Yeah, agreed. So I, think, I think Scotland have a lot of talent. I think given like how decimated the Irish front five is, that it'll be a bit more of a struggle than it would if, if both teams were at full strength. But I think Ireland will take so much confidence. The other thing that struck me with Ireland and England, just to return to it, is that oftentimes when, when I rewatch a match, I go, like the first 50 minutes, it's over after that. Like we didn't score another point after scoring 60 against Wales. And oftentimes it doesn't matter. Like there's just a momentum to the match and it goes that way. And like the last 20 minutes, you're just playing it out and the subs come on and it's just more mistakes. Yeah, and, and oh, the, the game, game broke up. The game lost its, its structure. And the game is kind of done, you know? Um, whereas the England match was... Like it had acts, it had complete yeah. momentum shifts. It had, um, they talk about the, the first and the last 10 minutes, and you sort of go, like, it was an 80 minute game, yeah. And it's unusual, I agree, that you, you see a match like that. So, I, I, our game against France was like that, Welsh game against Scotland was like that. Wales, Wales games against England, Scotland, like, Wales have shown mad hard in this tournament. Well, the Six Nations is fucking brilliant. Like, it's absolutely, I think we've taken for granted, maybe, like, the last two seasons of it. We always go on about how great Six Nations Yeah, I know, but, like, the last two seasons of it in particular have been, like, okay, there are now five decent teams and one pretty rancid team. And, like, (laughs) it's brilliant. And, like, everyone sort of was like, oh, we're playing Italy this weekend. There's literally nothing good can come out of it because we'll beat them. And, like, I want Italy to be good, but, like, they're not at the moment. And there's five teams who can beat each other. It's absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Oh God, I love the Six Nations. 